Hello, and welcome to another episode of All The Hacks, a show about upgrading your life, money, and travel. I'm Chris Hutchins, and I'm so excited you're here today for an in-person conversation with my good friend and second-time guest, Sahil Bloom. He's one of my favorite writers, and the life lessons he shares online are some of the best I've come across, and his newsletter and Twitter are must-follows. But today, I want to focus on a specific topic he's written about more than just about anyone out there, and that's razors. No, not razors for shaving, but these simple guiding principles or rules of thumb that can help make decision-making so much easier. We're going to talk about razors that will help you make decisions with people and relationships when you think about yourself, just general decision-making, whether it's work or home, and how you spend your time. There's a lot of great advice in this episode, and ever since reading Sahil's first post on the topic, I found myself using these razors regularly, and I'm sure they will add a ton of value to your life. So without further ado, let's jump in right after this. My fitness routine this year had a few rocky starts, but I am back into it now, and honestly, one of the things that helped me get back is that I just added some new workout gear, and if I'm going to buy more, why not have the best performance apparel out there, which I think is Viore, and I am excited to be partnering with them for this episode. Viore makes performance apparel that's incredibly versatile, everything's designed to work out in, but it doesn't look or feel like it at all, and it is so freaking comfortable, you will want to wear it all the time. But it's not just for men, my wife is obsessed with Viore as much as I am. While my personal favorite will probably always be the Sunday Performance Joggers, I have at least three pairs. I just got a few pairs of the Core Shorts and three or four Strato Tech Tees, and I'm loving them. Honestly, I can't think of the last time I went on a run, bike ride, or walk in anything else. Their products are so versatile, you can use them for just about any activity, whether it's running, training, or yoga, but they're also great for lounging, running around town, or they even have a few things you can wear for a night out. Honestly, I think Viore is an investment in your happiness, and for all the Hacks listeners, they're offering 20% off your first purchase, as well as free shipping and returns on U.S. orders over $75. So you should definitely check them out at allthehacks.com slash Viore. Again, go to allthehacks.com slash V-U-O-R-I and get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Sahil, thanks for being here. I'm so happy to be doing this in person. I don't do a lot of these in person. We're in New York City at Podstream, which I've never been to. but Right in the center of Times Square, but we are in a dark room between two ferns, as it were. Yeah, we are. So much of what you've written online for the past few years has had a big impact on me. And every time I come into a conversation, I'm like, oh, there's so much. But I got this advice from someone recently about travel. They said, whenever you go to travel, pretend like you're going to that city a million times for the rest of your life. And just don't feel like this is your last trip. Mm. So I'm going to treat this conversation like it's not our last conversation on the show, so I don't have to cover everything. Mm -hmm. So I thought back to kind of the first content of yours that I'd read, and it was all about razors, which at the time, I was like, I don't even know what that is. And I felt like that would be a great place to start for this conversation. But like everyone else listening, I'm sure people don't know what razors are. So can you talk a little bit about what they even are, and we can jump into why they're important? Yeah, absolutely. So it's not... For shaving would be the first thing I would start with, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, a philosophical razor, the term is from philosophy. And basically, the idea is that it's a rule of thumb or some sort of decision-making heuristic that allows you to cut through available options and make a decision. So the whole idea was like, in philosophy, you can take a razor and it allows you to like strip away any of the unnecessary things in order to cut through the noise and just make a decision. So Occam's razor is the one that if people know a single razor, Occam's razor is the thing they've heard of. And that's like the whole idea that basically simple is beautiful. It's like if you have 
a whole bunch of hypotheses, the one that requires the fewest assumptions is generally the one that is right if you're looking to decide which path you believe is the driver of some situation. So I've written a bunch about razors and basically like extending the concept into a whole bunch of different realms. I think a lot about ways to simplify decision making. It's always been something that I've liked. You're sort of similar to that. Like life hacks, right, are all sort of razors in their own way, shape or form, like ways to make a decision, cut through things that'll just simplify your life, hopefully, like tools in your toolkit. So that's been the kind of genesis of me writing about them in the past. I think when it comes to my whole scope in life is like, how do I optimize everything? I think one of the challenges you get into is there's just too much and you get overwhelmed. So for me, I love these idea of razors, rules of thumb to just make some of it a little easier. Yeah. Although the risk is that you then have like a million razors, which would be the pushback against this, which is like, oh, I have a million razors. I can't remember a single one of them. So the way I always think about these things is like tools in your toolkit. You don't need to like know that you have all of those different wrenches or all those different things at every single point in time. You just need to like have your toolkit and be able to open it up and think about, okay, what applies to a situation at any point in time. And I don't expect anyone listening to go home and be like, oh, I got 17 yeah. razors to use in my life. I did try to bulk them into a couple categories because okay. I thought that might be helpful for people to think, okay, I need to make a decision on this thing. Yeah, uh, Is there something that might make this easier? Yeah. So the first one I thought about was related to people, the optimist razor. Okay. Which I consider myself an optimist, so I like this one. Let's start there and yeah. kind of go through a few people one and see where we get. So the optimist razor is basically the idea that you should always default to trying to spend time with optimists. And if you have a choice between spending time with optimists and pessimists, you're always better off spending time with optimists. I originally came up with this during like the period of COVID when there was a whole ton of pessimism out there around like, oh, the markets are going to hell, the economy is going to hell. And then there was like little shades of optimism and like kind of mid 2020 about, okay, but a lot of these things are happening X, Y, and Z that might be positive actually for the future. Like the Fed was printing trillions and trillions of dollars. And what I found was my initial skew was to pessimism. And I was like, oh, short the market. Everything's going bad. Everything's going bad. And really regretted that after a few months when I realized that the optimists were actually the ones that were getting rich by betting on things going well in that time period. And so I started just thinking about, well, there's this little heuristic that pessimists sound really smart but optimists seem to be getting really rich. And it all of a sudden cemented in my mind, like, okay, there's something to this. And really, I want to be spending more time around optimists in general. But it's not just about investing and making money. It can be just who you want to hang out with on the weekend. Totally. That's why it applies so broadly to life. And when I took it beyond that, I just started thinking, like, who do you feel good when you're around? Just as a general rule of thumb, you're like, who do I get energy from? Who makes me happy and feel good to be around? And that tends to be optimists. Like again, pessimists, they sound smart and they have a whole lot of things and negativity, et cetera. But being around people that are positive and optimistic about the future, about what it looks like in any arena, just tends to feel better. And what I find is that good things happen when you spend time with optimists. They just have a better outlook on the future. And if you believe that energy attracts energy, optimists tend to attract good outcomes. What about finding people to work with? more than just hanging out. And it applies to another kind of area that I've thought about, which is originally from Nassim Taleb, the author of Black Swan. I forget what book it's in. It's either in Skin in the Game or Anti-Fragile, where he talks about this whole thing of like the surgeon and how you pick a surgeon. And so he tells this story of like, you're choosing between two surgeons who are 
of equal merit assume like they both have the same track record of successful surgeries say and one of them like looks like this beautiful polished like harvard medical school credentialed surgeon like perfect clean cut everything's good and then the other one looks like a butcher like he's got blood all over him like he just doesn't look the part he's like big hands whatever like big beard scraggly and his whole thing is that most people pick the like nice clean cut surgeon when what you should actually do is pick the one who doesn't look the part and his logic is that the one who doesn't look the part has had to overcome not looking the part in order to get to where they are and so if they have equal merit that one is actually the better one because they've had to overcome not looking like they should all along the way in order to get to that level and i've always thought that, that was like another interesting way of thinking about who to work with because we do have all of these little like biases and prejudices that are in our head and people that have managed to overcome all of those all on the way to get to where they are tend to be great, great people to work with. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever done unconscious bias training, but it just kind of like opens your eyes up to, oh, okay, like even someone who might not think you have bias, yeah. you have bias for sure. Yeah, I mean, the statistics on those things are insane. Like you can go on Google and just like look one up and do one of the tests quickly and you can get like a score on it. It's usually pretty shocking. What about smart friends? Again, like with people, the smart friends one is basically that... If you have enough smart friends talking about something, you should take it seriously. And again, like a lot of these were for me derived from bad experiences, like where I didn't listen to this and then I came to regret it. Again, going back to early COVID, like all of these smart friends of mine were talking about Board Ape Yacht Club as like a silly example, which maybe now it's like not as much of a thing. But at the time, it was like this NFT project. I didn't understand what NFTs were, but I had all these friends that were talking about it. And I was like, dude, that sounds stupid. I'm just going to ignore this. Like that sounds super dumb. But I had multiple friends saying it over and over again. If I had listened to them and done something about it, 12 months after that, I probably would have made like a million dollars off of just putting in a little bit of money into this thing. And so I developed a rule basically that was if three friends that I consider intelligent tell me about the same thing, I'm going to put like a little bit of skin into the game no matter what. Even if I'm not going to go deeper on it, it just like gives me kind of a hedge against looking like an idiot later on like I did with that one. But again, it's just another way of thinking about drafting off of the intelligence of your peer group. Like if you have smart people that are talking about things and you're in these circles with intelligent people that have domain expertise that goes beyond yours, listening to them and taking it seriously when there's enough density in a single idea is usually a good bet. Presumably they have to be excited about it or just talking about it. I think excited about it and domain experts. You don't want to have your like coder and engineer friends maybe like weighing in on like culture and fashion and being like, oh, I'm going to listen to them. You want it to be people like if they're in technology and they're weighing in on some new technology, like AI could be an example today. If you have a certain domain within AI that a bunch of your smart friends are really interested and excited about, it's worth taking seriously. It doesn't mean you have to invest in it or do something, but it's worth at least digging into it and trying to understand more because it might be like an asymmetric bet on the future. Right now, I feel like this about AI, except I just don't know how to make that asymmetric bet. Or maybe yeah. it's not even asymmetric anymore because what is it like yeah. 100 million people are using ChatGPT at this is point? Is it really 100 million people? The growth curve on ChatGPT, you can search it or I'll find the link and put it in the show notes. It's like Instagram grew to 100 million users this fast and all this. And you see these curves like this. And then ChatGPT is just like a straight line. Straight up. line up. I think I've seen that. I still just wonder with technology stuff like this, how much of it is that we're just in a bubble of sort of like semi-nerdy people on Twitter versus true mass proliferation of an idea. I honestly just don't know. I think ChatGPT has probably crossed the chasm, but I used to wonder that like with Web3 stuff, like if you go to like a normal person on the street, they're like, what the hell's an NFT, right? And so like there clearly wasn't a mass proliferation of the idea 
the utility of ChatGPT makes me believe that it is actually mass proliferating. It's funny because I had this experience this morning. I flew to New York today and I'm waiting for my bag to go through the metal detector and I hear three TSA agents talking about AI. And they're like, yo, I use this thing and it creates song lyrics. It creates art. And I was like, okay, it's clearly crossed to the mainstream, but the use cases everyone's excited about are not necessarily use cases that I think will drive business. The challenge I have is it's something that I feel really passionate about being big and have no clue how to bet on. Yeah. And there's a pretty good episode of the All In podcast yeah. where they were debating how to invest in this space. And these are some of the smartest investors in the world. And I can't remember which one said, I still haven't invested. Because if you look at the early days of so many of these industries, even look at social, like the first few social networks actually didn't work out. Yeah. And so... I'm frustrated because I feel like there's a there there, but I don't actually know what to do about it. If you're going to invest, you also have to separate it from hype cycle. Like normally TSA agents talking about it, I would say is like really peak hype cycle of something. And so hype cycle drives valuations. And so like I have this fund where I invest in early stage companies. And if you were to look at like the average deal that says they're an AI company right now, like the valuation at pre-seed or seed is like 25, 30 million dollars, which is very, very hard to drive a return in the aggregate across an asset class. And that's what I struggle with is like they're benefiting from hype cycle on their early valuation, which hurts investors on the margin. And so it's tough. It's tough to like discern, okay, what's there? What's actually just going to get eaten by whatever big company decides to do this? It's tricky. And most of them, by the way, are just doing like an open AI API call. They don't actually have anything internally or proprietary about it. And it's like, okay, you're just linking to another person's platform. The number of companies that have pitched me a thing that's like, hey, we take a document and we give you answers on it. And I'm like, you're just monetizing this other API. With like your own UI UX. Although a lot of companies have been built in that general way in different areas where it's just like, oh, we link to whatever platform and we're using their backend. So I'm not saying that company can't make money. I'm just skeptical in investing in anything at these valuations. Totally. But to come back to Razors, what do you do when someone comes to you with a crazy idea? Oh, man. So my favorite thing around crazy ideas is, I think it was Paul Graham, famous investor. He didn't actually frame it as a razor. I turned it into a razor, but he wrote this piece on what to do if someone comes to you with a crazy idea. And basically his thing boiled down to two questions to ask yourself. Are they a domain expert? And do I know them to be a reasonable person? And if the answer to both of those things is yes, then you should probably take the idea seriously because it might be an asymmetric bet on the future. And I thought that was such an elegant way to think about this because it's very easy to write off crazy ideas. Like you hear something and you're like, you don't understand it. So you're just like, that sounds ridiculous. Like that seems ludicrous that that would ever happen or that the future would look like that. But if you slow down and you ask yourself those two questions, you can actually like totally deconstruct the entire problem. You're asking like, are they domain experts? So do they understand this thing that they're talking about? Like the area around this thing very, very well. If the answer is yes, move on to the next question, which is, are they a reasonable person or are they completely ridiculous? And if you know they're completely ridiculous, you're like, okay, maybe I'm going to hesitate a little bit. But if they're not, if you know that they're like a reasonable person and that they do reasonable things, now you start to take the whole thing seriously a little bit based on those two. So I've always thought that that was like a really, really good way to cut through the noise on it. I find that my instinct is often to be like, that's not right. Totally. I think that's most of our common instinct when we hear anything. Especially because I don't understand it. Like, I'm not technical enough to know on most of these things. And so when someone says something that sounds crazy to me about the future, what the future is going to look like, what people are going to be doing, my default is like, that's stupid. No, no, no way. 
And generally on like five or 10 year time horizons, anything I thought was stupid, I've been completely wrong about. Like if there were enough people talking about it, like esports, like someone said this to me, I don't know, it's probably 2009. Like when I got to college, someone was like, dude, esports is going to be the next big thing. People are going to fill stadiums watching people play video games. And I was like, you are an idiot. I'm not listening to you anymore. That was dumb. And again, if I had bet on that in some way, that would have turned out pretty well for me at the time. And so now my new default is like, I take anything any smart person says, at least remotely seriously. One of my razors was around like listening. And the whole idea was like, if someone says something that is very different from your beliefs, you should listen twice as much as you speak. And that applies to this type of thing with like new investment ideas or like ideas on what the future of technology looks like just as much as political debates or anything that you're trying to kind of educate yourself on. Because generally our bias when we hear something that we don't agree with becomes, okay, I'm just going to talk over them and I'm going to tell them why they're wrong about this thing. But if you flip the script on that and you say like, I'm actually just going to listen a whole bunch and at least hear them out, usually you end up learning something. Even if you don't agree with them at the end, that's fine. But you end up learning something from how they're thinking about it. What's the best way to help you and your finances thrive? The answer can be overwhelming with all the financial misinformation out there. So I want to talk about an amazing resource, the NerdWallet Smart Money Podcast, where every week, NerdWallet's in-house experts and financial journalists set things straight and help you make smart decisions with your money. The nerds have already helped me get smarter about saving money on groceries, avoiding some of the latest financial scams, and boosting my credit score since it's actually been going a little bit up and a little bit more down lately as I've been taking advantage of a few recent credit card offers. They also explain the real impact that the latest financial headlines could have on your life so you'll get the clarity you need to make smart decisions with confidence. Weekly financial check-ins with smart money help you spend more time doing what matters and less time worrying about what doesn't. Let NerdWallet's trusted experts untangle today's web of financial misinformation. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. I wish I could say I'm eating a fully balanced diet every day, but the reality is that I'm not. So I love having an easy way to get my daily nutritional insurance, which is why I kickstart every day with AG1 from Athletic Greens, and I'm excited to be partnering with them for this episode. AG1 has been in my routine for the past six months because I think it's the best option for easy, optimal nutrition out there. You take one scoop of AG1 and you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. Every morning, I mix it up with some cold water, add a few ice cubes because it tastes so good cold, and head to my office feeling focused and energized for the day, which is a feeling I absolutely love. I also love that it has less than one gram of sugar and no GMOs, nasty chemicals, or artificial anything. To make giving it a try easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit allthehacks.com slash athleticgreens. Again, that's allthehacks.com slash athleticgreens to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, also, I think one of your life hacks, so Xylaz's great PDF of 50 life hacks, if I remember right, is trying to be interested, not interesting. Yeah, I mean, this is like a simple reframe, especially when you're young. 
I definitely fell into this trap when I first like started my career. My whole thing was like, okay, if I'm going to go to an event and I'm going to talk to people, I really want to be interesting. Like I want to talk about all the interesting things I'm doing or the interesting things. And the challenge is like on the margin, most people are not that interesting at 22. At 25, frankly, like most people aren't interesting for the first 10 years of their career because you just haven't done enough. You just, there's like not enough experiences in your life. And so my whole reframe around it is focus on being interested rather than interesting. And being interested means you're listening to people. It means you're asking follow-up questions. You're like diving down the rabbit hole with them to learn more about why they think certain things or why they're interested in certain things. And when you do that, people want you around because interested people are really fun to be around because they're actually listening to you and they're actually asking follow-up questions. Most people at a cocktail event or at a party or whatever are just waiting for their turn to speak. You're like talking to someone, having a conversation, and you see them sitting there and they're just like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then as soon as you get done, they're like, ah, they jump in with their thing. And that's not a particularly fun conversation partner. So I just think it's a great way to stand out in conversations and to actually learn things when you're in them. And it doesn't even have to be if you don't have anything interesting. It could just be to build more relationships. Totally. I just think it's a good way to live <laughs> life in general. Like you end up learning so much interesting stuff by just being interested. And paradoxically, being interested is how you become interesting because then you end up like getting into those cool situations. You end up learning interesting things. And that's what you end up going and capitalizing on, working on, et cetera. And how do you start that conversation? I think there was another life hack about just like how to start oh, the conversation yeah. to build it. I just found myself in like a lot of meetings or situations where I was way over my skis early in my career. I've always just like been great about finding my way into like weird situations that I don't belong in. Even like this last weekend, I was at the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting and I like had a chance to talk to Bill Gates. In a situation like that, you're like, what am I possibly going to have to offer or talk to Bill Gates about? Like, I don't have anything interesting, like possibly interesting that he would find interesting, like given who he has access to. So what I found is that the best way to get someone like that talking in what would otherwise be like a weird, clumsy, awkward situation is to ask them what they are most excited about in their life right now. And that can be like personal or professional. They can take it however they want it. And normally, really successful people have something that they're fired up about at any point in time. And if you can get them talking about that, then it becomes really easy. Like the pressure's off you. They're excited. They're like energetic about whatever it is that they're telling you about. And then you can just ask follow up questions. Like you can just dig deeper on stuff again to being interested. And that becomes a much, much easier conversation with anyone. And so what was Bill Gates interested what in? What was Bill Gates excited <laughs> about? Yeah. Like, I don't actually don't know that I'm allowed to talk about the thing that he was excited about wow. <laughs> in public because it was in a private setting. So I actually don't want to share it. Okay. <laughs> but it was a fun conversation. Fun, I mean, short, fun conversation. And you like get someone that otherwise you would be like, hi to, to talk for five minutes. That's like an amazing experience and opportunity. It was generally around climate technology, something that he's working on. It's funny. I talked to Catherine Minchu, who runs this company called The Muse based in New York. And her power move in situations like this also, when you're talking to someone that's more senior than you, chances are that person is like, when is this going to end? Like, yes, you can make them excited. She tries to be the one that always ends it first. Mm. She's like, oh, I'm going to remember that person. Like, I could talk to them again because they didn't just sit here and dominate my time. So oh, that's interesting. She, she brought up a time where she was at some conference and she was talking to Elon. And in the middle of it, she's like, hey, you know what? I got to go. But it was really great to talk to you and just walked away. That is a power move. And she said it's like made people that otherwise would be like, when is this person going to like yeah. leave this conversation? It just like made it so yeah. much better. And it makes it less awkward for them to have to end it too. Like when you just do it. I also find by the way that like following up and sending someone a book is like one of the best life hacks in the world because all of these like hyper, hyper successful people get sent so many like fancy bottles of wine, expensive champagnes, expensive bottles of alcohol, like 
super nice gifts that you couldn't possibly spend enough money to like send them something that would stand out. But if you send someone a book that really mattered to you with a handwritten note on like personalized stationery of why you think it'll resonate with them and something from the conversation that you enjoyed, you'll always stand out in their mind. Like forever, they'll remember that because no one really does that. It's just like an old fashioned thing. So it's a great, great way to stand out with people. Is there a book you've gifted the most? Yeah, When Breath Becomes Air by far, like probably 95% of the time, that's the book I share with people. If you've never read it, it's unbelievable. I know, I have read it. I'm like, oh man. Oh, you haven't? No. Oh my God. Yeah, well, it'll <laughs> knock you out. I mean, if you read it, like I read it on a plane for the first time and the last piece of it, I was like full on crying on this flight and the woman next to me had to ask if I was okay. So don't read it in a situation where you're not comfortable crying. Okay. So to wrap up all of these kind of people-related razors, I want to talk briefly about Hanlon. Hanlon's razor. Never attribute to malice what could otherwise be attributed to stupidity is the way that that is typically put. So basically, the idea is if someone does something, we have this tendency to say, wow, they're acting maliciously. They're acting negatively towards me or towards other people, whatever. And we should never do that if stupidity is a potential argument. So it's like the whole idea that we give people too much credit for being like malicious actors when in reality they might just be ignorant or dumb or, you know, unintelligent, etc. This is a great one for Twitter. In general is like you read people sending mean comments or saying things and you're like, "Oh, they're acting so maliciously and they're acting in such a bad faith way." When sometimes you can just chalk it up to them being ignorant or stupid. Is this similar to like assume best intent or like in the ballpark? Cuz I feel like that's one I use a lot. Yeah, I'd say it's similar. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, assume best intent is probably a nicer way of saying this. I just always found Hanlon's razor to be really funny because it's just like if you are finding that you're like thinking someone is acting in some bad, nefarious, calculating way, sometimes it's just that they're just not intelligent. <laughs> You've written multiple posts with lots of razors in lots of forms. I tried to pull some from the old post, some from the new post, and that was a lot of things related to interactions with people. And I'll link to those posts in the show notes. What I like is that in a lot of those posts, you say, hey, use this when you're deciding who to hang out with. Use this when. And so we can link there if you want to recap from this conversation. The other area that you alluded to at the beginning is making decisions, which I think is something that when optimized can really save you time because I know myself and a lot of people listening spend a lot of time making decisions, trying to get to the optimal outcome. So let's like talk about a few of these decision-making ones. Let's start with the arena. The arena. This all comes from like the man in the arena, Teddy Roosevelt speech of like, it's the person in the arena that really counts. And my whole operating principle around this is that you should always try to put yourself in the arena. And that takes on different forms in different areas of life. But basically, don't sit on the sidelines and sling rocks at people that are out there doing things. And so if you have a choice of two paths, of how to operate, you should put yourself in the vulnerable position in the arena because that's where you end up having the high upside things happen. That's like where real growth occurs and where you end up having those wins, et cetera. You can't really win long-term by sitting on the sidelines, especially not sitting on the sidelines throwing rocks at people that are out there. And you said this is the one you feel the most strong about in one of these posts. Have you seen a lot of personal wins from playing this? Yeah. I mean, I think that like 
it's the most wins, but it's also the most emotionally draining and trying sometimes because by putting yourself in the arena, you're exposing yourself to the whole lot of people out there that do just want to sling rocks from the sidelines. I mean, you've seen it, right? Like we're sitting here, you're producing this podcast. You've been creating this for a long time. You share everything publicly. It's out and about. There are going to be people that don't like it, that criticize it, et cetera. That's not fun. You're like me. You're a very positive, optimistic person. You're happy. Like you generally are just like a good, positive guy. And when there's random people out there that are reading your stuff or engaging with your stuff and are like, I hate Chris. He's awful. What a bad person, et cetera. It's a weird feeling where someone doesn't know you and they're engaging that way. But you've gotten so much upside from putting yourself in the arena and just consistently putting things out there. So I think it's like, you have to be able to have thick skin and take it when you're going to be putting yourself in the arena, but that's where the real wins actually end up happening. So for me, with my platform, with anything I'm putting out there, you're constantly putting your neck on the line and exposing yourself to it. And when you're sharing ideas publicly, that's like a very vulnerable state to put yourself in. The same thing applies to working in a corporate job. If you're going to put your ideas on the line with your boss or with your team or however you're going to do it, it's very easy to just sit back and let other people do that. But that's not how you're going to end up progressing and making it to the next level of whatever you want to do. Any tips for how you take that negative feedback? I feel like I'm fortunate because I don't love that podcasts are such a one-way medium. It's so much more effort to be like, oh, I was listening to something cool. Now I'm going to go find that person's contact, send them a note. So I tend to get pretty positive feedback because it's people that were pretty excited about what happened and send an email and I reply to them. I know you reply to a lot of, you know, if not all the emails you get. But a friend of mine posted on like the close Instagram thing this morning. She posted something online. She's like, I'm just having a bad day. And she posted a picture of Ben and Jerry's. She's like, I'm having ice cream. She posted photos on her close friends of all the DMs she got. And people were like, I can't believe you would promote a brand like that. Or like, can't you eat healthier ice cream? And I was just like, wow. like the internet could be a mean place, especially social media, which I don't spend a lot of time on yeah. as much as I do recording. But I know a lot of people have probably faced this, whether it's at work, throwing out a bad idea. How do you take that? Because I'm sure you've gotten a lot of it. I think defaulting to empathy is the single healthiest and best way that I've found to combat negativity. Basically, when someone says something super negative on the internet to someone that they don't know, it's pretty fair to assume that that person is not in a happy place in their life. Have you seen Legally Blonde? Oh, this yes. is going to be an embarrassing <laughs> reference. In the movie Legally Blonde, she's like, happy people just don't kill their husbands. They just don't. I think about that with happy people on the internet. Like, happy people just don't comment mean things to other people's posts on the internet. They just don't. Like, it's just not a thing that you would think to do. Like, you're a happy guy. I don't think you would think to go and, like, attack someone that you don't know on the internet. It's just not a thing you would do. And so I tend to think that when someone attacks you with negativity, there's usually something that's going on in their life that's tough. And we don't know what that is. And we're not behind that person's eyes. And so I try to default to empathy when I read something like that, of just like, oh, that person's having a tough day or the person is in a tough spot for whatever reason and not get all wound up about it. I never engage or fight back on that kind of stuff. Because again, it's like, I'm not going to convince them they're wrong. I'm not going to make their life better or change it. And so there's no point. Back to some of the career stuff. What about when you're faced with trying to decide between two paths you could take at work? So this is one from Naval that I really like, where he talks about making uphill decisions, I think is the way that he phrases it, which is basically when you choose between two paths, you should choose the path that is harder in the short term, because those tend to be the paths that work out better in the long term. So it's like the whole like short phrase of hard choices now, easy choices later, easy choices now, hard choices later. And I think it's an interesting, although nuanced one, to be totally honest, as I've thought more about this one over time, because 
sometimes choosing the hard path means that you're not allowing yourself the time to think about whether there's an easier way to do it. Like Tim Ferriss, who I know we both really like his work, talks about often, like, what if this were easy? What would this look like if this were easy? And I think it's a really important question to constantly ask yourself, like, is there actually an easy mode that I can play this game on that I'm just ignoring because I'm like taking pride in doing it the hard way? And as someone who's like sort of a recovering hustle culture bro from back in the day in finance, I often missed the easy mode way of playing the game because I was so prideful about playing the hard way. And so I think this like uphill decision one is actually a nuanced one I need to think about more and that people should think about more of any time you're doing something and it feels hard and difficult, you should pause and ask yourself, is there actually an easy mode? Like, is there an easy way that I can do this that I'm just missing out on because I'm grinding away in the way that I am? I sometimes think there's both easy and I sometimes think that gets caught up in like cheaper especially in a world of trying to optimize your life and your money. And you're like, oh, well, this is the cheapest way. So I should do it this way. Yeah. Give me an example of that. I've just talked about this on another episode. I don't know if it will have aired at this point, yeah. but my wife and I are talking about our children and we have a daughter who's about to be three. You'll learn this you know, in a couple of years. And she had this stint where she would just get out of bed after going to bed. And she'd say, run out the door, open the door and say, I have to go to the bathroom. I need a stuffed animal. Like she would just get out of bed constantly and my wife and I are like, okay, what do you do? You go on the internet and there's a bajillion people who have an opinion about what to do. And it's hard to figure out what the right thing is. So it's like, what's your manifesto? Like, who do I trust? When it came to a lot of early decision stuff, we just went to Emily Oster, who's written a few books about parenting. And she's like, this is what you need to know about the expecting phase, the baby phase. But I didn't have something from her for this. And my wife was like, well, I really like the content that this company called Big Little Feelings puts out. And I believe we use their course for potty training. My wife's just like, I really like how they teach what they believe in. So she took their course. It was you know 30 bucks or something. She's like, well, I have this other course. It's a hundred dollars. And she was like, do you think it's worth spending a hundred dollars to get a source? I really trust database of like how to handle every toddler scenario. And she, I was like, well, what's the alternative? So what we did was we were like, well, one alternative. So I just asked chat GPT. I was like, what should I do? With yeah. Answer was like, okay. It was surprisingly good. But it's like, do we want to go do a bunch of research or just trust this thing? And so a part of my mind was spinning saying, well, I could go find the answer. Like the answer exists on the internet. It's all this work and it's the cheaper one. It, so I was both taking this uphill battle of like the hard work of me deciding what the right answer is, but also the cheaper answer. But my wife asked me, and this time she was in this situation I usually am, which is like, she's saying, I want to do all the work. Yeah. And what I learned is it was really easy for me to make a different decision when it wasn't for me. When I put a little bit of emotion in it, I was like, just buy the thing. Yeah. No problem. It was an easy decision for me. But for her, it felt so hard because she was like, well, I could do this research. I could do it. And maybe I'd learn more. Yeah. So cheap is not always cheap. Like the thing I've always found is that the thing I think is cheaper is generally more expensive. And I find this with everything. This is like me not being frugal too, but I've always been big on just like, you know, my wife would ask, like we were getting our new house here in New York and she's like, what furniture? Like there's this furniture or there's a really nice, like this furniture. And I was like, just get the nice one. Cause like you're going to have it. And like getting the cheap furniture sounds good when you get it. And it's like 50% cheaper, but when it breaks, like we got cheap outdoor furniture and really nice indoor furniture. Well, the outdoor furniture after one winter in New York now looks like crap and I'm going to have to buy new outdoor furniture. Now I'm going to have to get the nice outdoor furniture. So this doesn't happen again. Cause I don't want to replace it every year. Would have been better off just getting the nice one and taking care of it and doing that. And so I've generally found that the thing that is like the cheap way of doing it, like 
spending tons of time on ChatGPT researching all this stuff. Well, now I have the headache of having to like synthesize all of this stuff that I found and convince my wife because it's like what I found and she didn't find it. I just would have been better off buying the course and spending whatever it costs because it would have saved me so much time and so much stress. So nothing makes me happier. And you're an example of this, of finding someone who's done all the research to come up with a bunch of... I'm not going to go research what my razor should be. I'm just going to take your list of (laughs) razors and be like, I'm going to use this. That's how I feel about hacks with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So that's my gift is optimizing life. Yours is synthesizing Synthesizing life I guess it's kind of a similar thing. It's, you know, you've got business advice, personal advice. It's different advice, just maybe not as focused on deals and travel and optimization. But... When it comes to decisions, there was another one about rare opportunities. This is an interesting one because I heard this for the first time from the founders, two of three partners at the first firm that I worked at. And basically, they were two younger guys who spun out from their prior firm with one of the founders of that prior firm to start a new one. And they were like 30 when they spun out and got to be co-founders of this new private equity fund. And I asked them how they thought about that decision. And the way that he said it was... There are certain opportunities in life that you get on average zero to one time in your life. Like the average person gets zero to one. And so if you're one of the lucky people that gets that one chance, that one opportunity for this really rare opportunity, you have to jump at it. And he was like, starting your own private equity fund is an opportunity that you get zero to one times in your life. And so the fact that he was getting it, he was like, I have to go do this, even though he was on the safe track doing really well at his prior firm. And I remember registering that as very, very interesting. And then when I was thinking about my own opportunity to go and kind of build this ecosystem and the thing that I was working on, it was a really key factor in me deciding to kind of go all in and do it. Because I felt like, okay, I might get one chance to do this unique thing while I'm on a growth curve and things are going well and there's all this stuff happening in the world, like this might be my one chance to go do the interesting thing. Because if I don't, then I'm going to have like all this gravity around what I've been doing and it's going to have built and we're going to have kids and it's going to be much more challenging. And so here's my like rare opportunity that has popped up and I need to just jump at it. And I think it is like a really good framework for thinking about those unique moments in life. Just like being able to pause, recognize when you're having that unique chance and to just sort of throw caution to the wind and jump at it. And I think not overthinking the reasons not to do it. So I look back, I was in college and I won't go to the whole life story, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't even really realize that you were supposed to plan your job so far in advance. So I was like springing at the end, like, I got to go get a job. I got to do this quickly. And I got an opportunity to work at an investment bank in New York called Allen & Company. Kind of like weird, small boutique bank. I know it. But the only job they offered was an internship. At the time, I was like one month into even knowing what investment bank was. And I only went down that path because I asked my friends who were well more prepared, said, what's the best job you can get out of college? And they're like, investment banking. I was like, well, I guess I should do that. I don't know what I want to do. And they were like, Allen & Companies, it's not like one of the places you could just get a job. Kind of had this mystique and allure. And I was like, do I take an internship? Not a full-time job, just an internship and see where it goes but everyone was telling me like, this is a rare opportunity. Like, yeah. You don't usually get an offer from a company that's so secretive and yeah. cool. And Especially when you don't know what investment banking is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had read my vault <laughs> yeah. guide. Yeah. I don't know if the vault guide still exists, but back then it was like, there was this yeah. book. It's like, read this and you yeah. understand the industry. Yeah. So I took that. That was one. I feel like starting a podcast was one. There have been a handful of times where I've quit a job to go do a thing or I don't know. We traveled around the world because yeah. we were like, this is a window to do it. So I love that one. How would that connect to minimizing regret on these rare opportunities? Yeah. I mean, the regret minimization framework, I think the first time Bezos talked about this was in an interview with Walter Isaacson. 
it might be like 1996, like way, way back interview, basically we're like super nerdy Bezos, not jacked out of his mind Bezos that we have today. Like really nerdy Bezos is talking about how he made the decision to leave D.E. Shaw. This relates directly to the rare opportunity, by the way. Leave D.E. Shaw, which is like this famous quant hedge fund where he was making tons of money and like on a very certain path to make tens of millions of dollars in his life. Amazing, amazing outcome and career. Top 0.01% life. Leave that to go start a bookstore on the internet, which makes no sense. Again, like crazy ideas going back to connected to other razors. And his whole thing was zoom forward to the future. Think about like your 80 year old self looking back on this decision. Will you regret not doing it? And if the answer is yes, then you should do it. And so that's what he did. So he thought, like, will I regret not taking this opportunity and going after this? And the answer was yes. And so he left and started Amazon. And now we all get packages in 24 hours from drones that are dropping them off. I mean, I think it's like a brilliant general way of thinking about this. I've often thought about it in both directions. You're like, okay, you know, what would your 80 year old self say about this decision? Also, what would your 10 year old self say about this decision? And the reason I think that one's good is because like your 80 year old self really cares about the compounding of the decisions you make today and like how any decision you're making today is going to compound in the future. But your 10-year-old self also reminds you to like not take shit too seriously along the way. You're probably like this too. You're an optimizer, right? You're thinking through every decision. You're really thoughtful. You're like constantly trying to get little bits of ROI out of everything you're doing. That's great. I think there's a lot of value that can be gleaned from that. At the same time, sometimes you just need to like have some fun and not think about razors and not think about hacks and just like go have a beer and like sit on the couch and not take advantage of whatever time you're wasting by doing that. And I think that that always helps. I call it the young and old test. It's like you think about the decision as a 10-year-old and as an 80-year-old and then sort of like meet in the middle. You know, the Bezos thing, like it ties directly to the rare opportunity. It's like you have this one potential opportunity in your whole life to go do this thing and you should capitalize on it. And to your point on making these decisions without thinking too much about them, I've often thought about that as a concept, which is like big decisions, paradoxically, I find are better made quickly versus slowly. And there's this like desire when you have a big, big decision, you like, okay, I'm going to sit down and make this big chart of pros and cons and spend all this time thinking through them. What I tend to find is that your instinct actually is usually pretty good. And sometimes you just need to like open the door, jump out and like hope you packed your parachute really well. I think it ends up making for much better outcomes. You don't waste so much time. I did an episode recently, I haven't aired it yet, where I had a performance coach come in and we picked a topic and we just recorded the session. Okay. And the topic was, I struggle so often of like over optimizations. Like I have all these decisions to make. And what he actually broke down through this interesting conversation using tactics that we later in the episode talked about the tactics he was using was that a lot of times most decisions are made emotionally, mm-hmm. but you don't think that in the moment. You're talking about big decisions. It's like you want to like make your pro and con list, analyze everything. And he's like, you need to stop and not just reflect, but maybe get outside and force yourself into a different state because the emotional decision might actually be the easy way. He was basically trying to teach me that this thing that we often think of as like our gut decision might actually be more of like an emotional decision. We talked about this exact example I used about my wife in this course. And he was like, it was so easy for you to make that decision because you were thinking about it emotionally. You weren't in the middle of doing the research. Mm -hmm. And so my new thing is whenever I'm in the middle of trying to make a decision, big or small, I try to pause and then get myself out of the research phase, not pause and look at my options, pause and look at my spreadsheet, 
but pause and like go outside for 10 minutes and just think about like, what's the right decision here? And sometimes it just comes to you. It doesn't come to you when you're looking at the data. It comes to you when you think like, what would the right decision here be? It's interesting. I mean, my reflection is just I've never made a single pro con list that actually swayed my decision. Like in a movie, they make the pro con list and then they look at the list and like the pros are like there's 30 of them and the cons there's like three and you're like, oh, okay, it's clearly a pro. But like that's never happened to me in real life. What ends up happening is I just like sit there and stare at something that looks relatively balanced and then you just end up making the decision anyway. It's not like it actually helped me think it through. So I go back and forth. I'm like you, right? Like I have all these frameworks and mental models and razors, but it's not like I'm sitting going through a checklist of them when I'm going and making decisions. It's sort of, again, things that are in sort of your mental toolkit that you're generally thinking about. But like to go back to one, like the optimist razor, it's not like I'm thinking like, okay, well, Chris invited me to do a podcast and Chris is an optimist. So I should, okay, by this decision making, I'm going to go spend time with Chris. It's just like ways to live your life that you just generally are trying to be around optimists or whatever it is. I try to avoid being mechanical about how all this stuff gets implemented. It's just like general rules and ideas that you have floating around your brain that you're kind of applying to how you live life on a daily basis. I really like that. I was thinking maybe yeah, the contact sorted by optimist score. Yeah, but, yeah. Optimist uh, <laughs> score, Chris, 7.2. So, yeah. okay, we're doing the podcast. <laughs> there is nothing I love more than learning something I enjoy is actually so good for you, and nothing showcases that better than Pu'er tea. It has so many health benefits, and one of my favorite ways to consume Pu'er is from our sponsor today. Peaks Pu'er teas are all cold extracted using only wild harvested leaves from 250-year-old trees rich in minerals, theraflavins, and catechins. Then everything is triple toxin screened for pesticides, heavy metals, and toxic mold commonly found in plants. Using Peaks products is so easy and requires zero prep because they're all in pre-measured quantities that dissolve in cold or hot water in seconds, and they are so travel-friendly. They have so many different products, but this year, my two go-to teas are the Green Pu'er, which is great for mental clarity and energy, and the Black Pu'er, which helps kickstart digestion and metabolism with a rich, earthy flavor that is so good and probably one of my favorite teas to drink. And if you need another reason, search for all the amazing research-backed benefits of polyphenols for your gut microbiome, heart, blood sugar, and then be happy that Pu'er is more concentrated in polyphenols than all other teas in the world. But you don't even have to take my word or do any of that research because Peak Tea offers free U.S. shipping, free returns, and a money-back guarantee. And for a limited time, you can get up to 15% off and a free quiver with 12 tea samples with my link at allthehacks.com peak. That's P-I-Q-U-E. So check it out today at allthehacks.com peak, P-I-Q-U-E. When it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy, and even if you've already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. And now that I'm working with Gelt, I finally feel like I have a partner I can trust to handle everything for my business and personal taxes, and I'm excited to partner with them for this episode. Think of Gelt as the ultimate modern CPA. They not only offer an amazing tech platform that gives you personalized guidance to maximize deductions, tax credits, and savings, but also everything. Everything is backed by an in-house team of expert CPAs who can recommend the most effective tax strategies to minimize risk and grow your wealth. And best of all, you can have this transparent, open communication with your team in whatever way works best for you, whether that's on their platform, over email, in Slack, or scheduling a call. 
Finally, my favorite story is that when we first onboarded with Gelt, they reviewed our past returns and found a huge mistake our prior CPA had made, so they refiled and got us back all that money. So if you're ready for a more premium, proactive tax strategy to optimize and file your taxes, you have to check out Gelt. And as an All The Hacks listener, you can skip the waitlist and get started today. Just head to allthehacks.com slash gelt, G-E-L-T. Again, that's allthehacks.com slash G-E-L-T. I just want to thank you, Quick, for listening to and supporting the show. Your support is what keeps this show going. To get all of the URLs, codes, deals, and discounts from our partners, you can go to allthehacks.com slash deals. So please consider supporting those who support us. Okay, so we're not going to spend all of our time optimizing every decision we make, going through these rubrics every time we do anything. Let's talk a little bit about how we spend our time and how we choose what to do with our time. So one of the things I know you value is serendipity. I have this concept of luck surface area that I've probably adapted from people that have talked about it over a period of time. The first time I ever heard, I think it was serendipity, was this guy, Tim Brown, who was the CEO of IDEO, the big design firm. And he talked about the whole idea of like engineered serendipity that you could like create luck. And it was the first time I had ever heard of it. This is probably back in like 2010 or something like that. Like I was in college. And it always stuck with me. So I've recently been thinking about like luck surface area, like the whole idea that you can actually expand your surface area for having lucky things happen to you. And how you do that is by, again, putting yourself out there. It's like you don't get lucky sitting on the couch watching Netflix at home. You get lucky by being out, engaging with people, meeting new people, publishing your work, putting things out there into the world and seeing what can bounce off of it and the connections that can be made. And so my whole idea with the luck razor or with the serendipity razor is you should always try to expand your luck surface area. Like if you're going to choose two paths, like a decision to make between staying in and watching Netflix on a given evening or going to that opportunity, the dinner, the meeting, the people, whatever it is, or to publish something publicly rather than to just like have it sit in your journal, you should take the path that has the larger luck surface area. I think this applies mostly when you're trying to expand your luck surface area earlier in your life and in your career. Once you've done that and you've figured out where the ripest opportunities are, then you can start going deep and you can narrow it. Like for instance, today, I would probably choose to sit at home and relax and spend time with my wife and son rather than going out and about to some big event. Because I don't really feel like I'm trying to get lucky on things anymore. I've sort of figured out where my luck has come from. And now I'm just going down and digging deeper into that area, into that hole. But early on, expanding your luck surface area in any way, shape or form early in your life and career, I think is important. I want to come back to how we do spend our time. But let's say you are going out and I'm going to kind of tee up one other razor, which is there's two rooms. How do you pick which one to go to? The one where you're going to be the dumbest one in the room. Always, always. I, this is like a common thing that people say is like, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And I really do believe that. Like putting yourself in uncomfortable positions where everyone is smarter than you tends to lead to really interesting things, especially when you pair it with some of the stuff we talked about earlier of like good ways to get those kind of people talking, good ways to think about how you can be valuable to them, how you can stick out in their minds, like walking away from the conversation. Like you said, I like that one a lot. I'm going to steal that sending people books, et cetera, just getting into rooms where you feel a little bit uncomfortable. That's where you end up having the most growth come. I love just walking up to a table of people. I'm like, I have no idea yeah. what you're talking Like, let me just listen. And yeah. it's super uncomfortable. Yeah, it is super uncomfortable. And you could do it in a weird way. But in the right environment, I think it's 
wildly interesting. Yeah, um, I'm going to this event in Santa Barbara in a couple of weeks, and there's a lot of wildly successful people that it looks like are going to be there, and I literally don't know a single person. And today I was like, man, it's going to be really hard to go like and do this because I don't even have like a wingman. Like I don't have like a friend who's like my guy that I can like go around with or girl that I can go around with. I literally don't know anyone. And I feel like a total imposter going to this event because everyone is CEOs, like really, really impressive people. I had to like snap myself out of it and just say like, oh, what a cool opportunity to just be in this room. You can just go listen to people and add value in some other way other than talking. I'm excited for it now. But I want to come back finally to where we spend our time. And you have a Time Billionaire Razor, but you actually did a really great post about this and looked at some data on how we spend time. So maybe let's end talking about how we spend our time and how that's evolved for you. This is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. You have young kids. I have a, I guess by the time this comes out, he will be one. And I have thought about time more in the last year than I had my entire life. Part of that is because when you have a young kid, you all of a sudden start measuring time in weeks and months, which you never really do otherwise. Like people ask you how old the kid is and you say like six weeks or nine weeks or 12 weeks, whatever. I've never thought about the passage of weeks as a passage of time in the past. It's just like another week. A lot of people have now seen that like life calendar, like memento mori calendar where it's 52 rows across and it's 80 rows down. So it represents your entire life. Every row is a year and the 80 rows is your life. And you fill in black every week that goes by. So you can literally see the passage of your life, passage of time. So I've been thinking about this stuff more and more over the course of the last year. And I came across this American Time Use Survey data set that I think it was our world and data kind of crunched together to look at how we spend time over the course of our lives and specifically who we spend it with. They had kind of combined it into a single chart of all of these lines, like how much time you spend with your children, how much time you spend with your parents, how much time you spend with friends, coworkers, alone, etc. I went in and downloaded the data and split it out into individual charts that you could really see like each line and kind of the curvature of each line. And it was an unbelievably powerful image when you look at them individually, especially with kids, how you like basically spend all of your time with them during this like very short window of their life and then you falls off a cliff and the reverse of that is with your parents you spend almost all of your time with them over the first 18 years of your life and then it just goes like this and you're not spending time for the rest of your life and so it just brought to the fore all of these really difficult conversations but also sort of empowering ones for who you spend your time with, who you want to be spending your time with, and how you want to sort of change the curves, as it were, over the course of your life. And so have you made changes in the last year as a result of thinking about this? Yeah. I mean, the biggest change we made was in May 2021, where we picked up our life and sold our house in California, bought a house in New York and moved to be closer to my parents and to my wife's parents. And that was based on the initial realization of how little time we had left with our parents, not because they're particularly old or sick, knock on wood, but just based on math and their age, our age, how often we were seeing them about once a year. And now I see my parents at least a few times a month. They're like a big, big part of my son's life. Similar with my wife's parents, they're constantly around And it makes a huge difference. And it makes them so happy, too, to be a part of our lives, to be a part of our son's life. So that was a huge life change. And then the kids one is the biggest for me in terms of what it's done in the last year. This friend of mine, um, Kay, who has talked about the magic window, I think he calls it, or the magic years, which is like this 10-year period of time where you are your kid's favorite person in the world. And once they're older than 10, 
there are other people that fill that role. They have best friends, they have girlfriends, boyfriends, they get married, they're going to have kids, like they're going to go on and live their entire life where you as their parent are not really like the central figure and actor. But during this 10-year window, you are. And they love you more than anyone else in the world. Yet we live in a culture where traditionally those are the years where you're also working the most and like trying to make the most of your life and of your career. We were talking about this earlier, like your life is really good, but you also want more from your career or from businesses you're building. How do you balance those two? Because anything you decide to do or take on is a direct trade-off of time with your kids. If you're going to be grinding on some business or project or working, that's just time away that you could be spending with them. And so how do you figure out and find the balance of that? I've been thinking about that more and more and more. And being home during this like first year of my kid's life and getting to spend tons of time with him and really build a bond with him is meaningful to me. And so does that mean saying no to a lot more yeah. professional things? Dramat I mean, like I say no to 99% of opportunities that come my way. And now, I mean, by virtue of the scale of my platform and how it's been growing, it's a lot of stuff and a lot of financial things that I'm just turning down out of hand. And for me, that's been a conscious decision of, I don't actually particularly find myself motivated by money all that much. So I actually don't feel like I need much more money than I have today. And we have a great house and we like our life a lot. And we're happy and I have tons of time at home and free time with my son. And I actually wouldn't change that much. Like if you offered to pay me today, $50 million to work 80 hours a week this year, I would not do it. Full stop. Like wouldn't even consider it. And that's a pretty empowering feeling when you realize the priorities and the trade-offs. But that, I mean, to me, just like really being ruthless about what my North Star is and what I want to focus on has been a pretty liberating thing and a really meaningful thing for me. What do you think's helped you not want to play Keeping Up with the Joneses, which I feel like many of our peers are still feeling that? I think the biggest thing is avoiding the like when then psychology around this stuff. I saw a great clip of Dax Shepard recently talking about this and how he had all of the trappings that he thought were going to make him happy and successful. And he had convinced himself all along the way that like, well, when that thing happened, then I'm going to be happy and this will be great. And then he got that and he realized he was like suicidal and not happy at all. And so it was really liberating then on the back end of getting healed and treated for all of that to realize, oh, those external things aren't actually going to ever make me happy. He saw it really viscerally. Most people never have that. You don't realize that all of those games you're playing in your mind, like, well, when I get to vice president or whatever, then I'm be happy because I'm going to be making all this more money. Or when I get a million followers on whatever platform, then I'm going to be really happy. I'm going to have made it. Things are going to be good. The reality is if you're looking for something external to be what creates your internal happiness, it's never going to work out. Happiness is full on inside job. Like You have to be finding happiness from something that is a deeper meaning, deeper purpose, something internal. It can't be some external achievement because it just doesn't last. You just revert to whatever the next when is that you're going to create. So for me personally, I've realized that I stepped off the treadmill around all those things. That doesn't mean that I don't want more because I am motivated by growth, but the growth is an internal thing versus an external thing. It's not, hey, I want to like make X dollars or do this or that. It's like, I want to feel like I'm getting better at things. And if that's getting better at being a dad, that's great. If that's getting better at running, because I'm like really into running right now, then that's great. But it's not... I want to get a better house and I want to get a better car and I want to like that guy got this. So I want to do that. It's just turned everything internal in a much deeper way. The way I describe it for me is I want to feel pulled into things instead of pushed into things now. 
And so I had a friend who was like, I want to start a company. I was like, why do you want to start a company? Yeah. You're like, you started a company. You've done this. You've been successful. The more he thought about it, he was like, well, I feel like I don't know what I want to do. And I was like, just wait till there's a thing that's pulling you towards it instead of trying to push yourself into yeah. it. That's what I try to look for, which is ultimately why I left. I was like, I just feel that I have to go do this full time. Yeah. I mean, the other way to think about it is, again, I think this is from Tim Ferriss. He has this question of what am I saying no to by saying yes to this? And I think about that constantly in the context of family and in the context of what my priorities are. I mean, like if my son is my number one priority in the world right now, and building a deep relationship with him over this next 10 years and really, really having that closeness and that bond, anytime some new opportunity comes along, I have to think that question through and think about, okay, what am I saying no to with him by saying yes to this? Like if some new travel comes up and someone wants me to go and speak at something and it's going to require me being gone for a few weeks, what am I going to miss? Like, what am I going to be saying no to? And it might be $50,000 that someone wants me to come speak at something and they're going to pay and it's going to be this cool trip and I'm going to get to go to this cool place. But if I'm missing his birthday party, like, Hell no. You know, like there's no amount of money you could pay me, right? And so really thinking that through. And it might not be kids. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's time with your family. Maybe it's some hobby that you really enjoy or a trip with friends that you really wanted to take that you're going to have to say no to because of some new work thing that you're going to really have to dive into if you get the opportunity. Thinking through those trade-offs, I think, is a really healthy thing to do. But it requires you to sit back and figure out what your priorities are. What are the core ways that you're going to measure the success of your life at the end of the day? And that could be a whole nother episode. So we're not going to go down that path. But I will say that my hack here is I took a lot of time to craft what I thought was like my perfect no email. And then I made it a snippet so that I could just fire it off anytime. And someone's like, hey, I really want to talk about this thing. And I'm like, I'm heads down. I should probably just publish it because people, yeah, people could steal it. It's like, I'm really heads down, focusing on stuff that's important. Feel free to shoot me an email, but not going to have time to meet. Really appreciate you reaching out. means a lot. Thanks. Yeah. I do the same. And Sorry. by making it easy, I use it so much more. Yeah. And honestly, the difference between thinking about it and having it as like a keyboard shortcut level ease makes me send it so often and feel okay about it. Yeah. And I got this from Derek Sivers Hmm. who was like, if you're always busy and you can never meet with anyone, you're kind of projecting that you can't prioritize your own time. Mm. And if you leave free time in your calendar, you're able to take advantage of things when they happen that are really interesting. And so I'm trying to live by that. It's hard because especially when you're younger, it's like every opportunity could be more serendipity, more serendipity. But I feel like as we have families and we kind of understand our areas, you've got to really do it. So I appreciate you saying yes to this because there's always so much knowledge that gets dropped doing it. Where do you want to send people today who are listening and want to stay on top of what you're doing? I guess my newsletter is probably the best. Sahobloom.com slash newsletter takes you straight to the newsletter. But everything's on my website. And then I'm on all social platforms at Sahobloom. The virtue of having a weird name is yeah. you get your own handle. Kind messages only. No, yeah, no kind messages snarky. only. If you send me the mean ones, I won't reply, but I will feel empathy for you. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Awesome. Thanks. That was so great. And as much as traveling across the country takes a toll on you, I do really enjoy having some of these conversations in person. I really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. So please let me know what you think or share any ideas you have for other guests, topics to explore or questions you have. 
to chris at allthehacks.com. Also, quick reminder to anyone looking to get that 80,000 point sign up bonus on the Chase Sapphire Preferred. It is ending soon. So to learn more, head over to allthehacks.com slash CSP. Or if you're looking for any other cards and you want to support me in the show, you can go to allthehacks.com slash cards. All right, that's it for this week. See you next week. Thank you.